This lush rainforest in Peru's Amazon jungle grows so densely as to hide many of its natural wonders and riches. The vast tropical vegetation yields a cornucopia of edible plants, timber, firewood, and botanical medicines, some long used by native populations. About 80,000 different species of plants grow here. Nobody knows for sure how many, and only a small fraction have been scientifically studied. Medical botanists believe that in the thick jungle growth, nature may have camouflaged powerful cures for human diseases. In this program, you'll learn about the truly fascinating history of herbal remedies and how they're used today to treat ailments from the common cold to serious medical conditions. Welcome back to The Medicine Garden. I'm David Freudberg. interest in herbal medicine really uh, started uh, at the time I, I was a family doctor in a small rural town in California. Physician David Katz, now in Sacramento, California. I did everything from delivering babies to taking care of people in their later years and uh, when they were dying. The um, thing that I noticed was that many people wouldn't take the standard medical treatments, so even though I knew that I could get rid of the symptoms that they were coming for. They weren't willing to do the treatment that I wanted because of the side effects that they got. Uh, another group of people didn't get better from the standard treatments. I, for instance, if we looked at allergies, they uh, took all the antihistamines that I had to offer them, either couldn't tolerate them or didn't get better, even went to the allergist, may have tried allergy shots uh, and that didn't make them better either. So they were back and they were asking for something else. So I began to look at what other types of treatments were available. Dr. Katz decided to explore herbal medicines because they are natural and often are more gentle on the body than highly concentrated pharmaceutical drugs. An example is a plant-based remedy used with patients suffering from prostate problems. There is a treatment that actually one of my colleagues at work introduced me to uh, with sawgrass, which is an herb, which does help urine to flow more freely and helps the uh, prostate to not interfere with urine flow during the night so that the person can truly empty their bladder and not have to get up over and over again. I don't believe medical science really understands exactly how it works, but for many men it does work. Sawgrass, often called saw palmetto, is an increasingly popular plant remedy. Public interest in herbal medicine is surging. Natural botanicals recently became the fastest growing sector of the American pharmacy industry. In drugstores like this one outside Boston, medicinal plants are now widely available in powdered form and in extracts prepared as liquid tinctures, tablets, teas, cough drops, and ointments. Natural remedies like garlic, echinacea, ginseng, and dozens of other herbs are now commonly sold. Dr. Varro Tyler in West Lafayette, Indiana, was longtime dean of the pharmacy school at Purdue University. It has become mainstream. It's very popular. People want to know about it. 
and uh, it, it is really going to, I think, increase even more. Why is it increasing? Modern medicine is to some extent distrusted. It's high cost, difficulty of access, the fact that it can't cure everything, neither can herbs, of course, but all of those things account for some distrust of modern medicine, so people want to try something else. Uh, in addition, uh, herbal products are usually milder, both in their effects and in their side effects, and people like that in comparison to synthetic chemical agents. Another strong appeal of herbal remedies is their low cost. Affordability may bring botanical medicine into greater future acceptance. One of the big facts about healthcare in the late 20th century is that it is phenomenally expensive. And one of the most expensive parts of any healthcare budget nationally or for a hospital or for a community is the drug bill. It is huge. And one of the obvious answers is herbs. Health writer Barbara Griggs in London. The cost to the hospital or the patient that uses them is going to be much, much lower than a drug because millions and millions and millions haven't been spent on developing them. I mean, herbs are there for everyone to use. Garlic, for instance, is an extremely good example. There are plenty of drugs on the market now that are prescribed for high blood pressure, and few of them are as effective, and none of them has fewer side effects than garlic. So garlic would be a very, very cheap medicine. Food medicines like garlic are generally recognized as safe. And while some plants found in nature definitely are poisonous, properly prepared herbal medicines, if taken according to the recommended dose, are usually as safe as, if not safer than, pharmaceutical drugs. Professor Varro Tyler of Purdue. The uh, agencies that collect data from the poison control centers regarding poisoning by all kinds of, uh, of products ranging from household cleansers to uh, medicines put uh, poisoning by plants in the absolute last category in terms of frequency. And that would include the reported frequency of poisoning by herbal remedies. It is extremely infrequent in the United States. If herbs are relatively harmless and relatively cheap, where exactly do they fit into the repertoire of medical choices available to us? Physician Andrew Weil in Tucson, Arizona, is best-selling author of Spontaneous Healing. I would like to see informed healthcare consumers uh, who know when and when not to use standard medicine. In general, you use standard medicine for crises, you know, for things that are really severe. Uh, the problem is if you go to standard medicine with everything, with all the common complaints, I think you're likely to be treated with, especially with drugs that can be toxic, expensive, and you fail to get the benefit of simpler remedies uh, that most doctors simply are not trained in. You know, there's a lot of conditions out there for which there are simple, inexpensive remedies, many of them herbal, uh, that could be tried before you use the strong, expensive stuff. Dr. Weil says plant-based medicines can be helpful for certain moderate ailments, such as the common cold, allergies, skin conditions, and gastrointestinal disorders, as well as for some chronic maladies, like arthritis and cardiovascular conditions, where the patient wishes to avoid a prolonged regimen of synthetic drugs with unpleasant side effects. 
Plants, as nature designed them, often contain lower doses of medicine than do pharmaceuticals. And so, while herbs are frequently easier on your system, satisfactory results may take a little longer with botanicals. great attraction of herbal medicine is it is potentially everybody's. Medical herbalist Simon Mills at the University of Exeter in England. You can step outside any front door of any building in the world and you'll find three or four herbal remedies immediately accessible to you. Most of our grandparents had this ability. There was a basic understanding of plants in the past which we unfortunately have lost. The exact origins of herbal medicine will perhaps always remain as mysterious as nature itself. It is said that an ancient king suffering from leprosy retreated to the forest with his servant for a period of meditation and healing. There, holy flour descended from heaven, which when baked into a bread and eaten gave special powers. After consuming the bread, the servant became aware that the plants and trees around him began to speak each announcing its own special medicinal property. Using this knowledge, the king was cured. Thus, according to legend, was the knowledge of plant medicine revealed to humanity. I don't think any primitive tribe has ever been started which didn't use the herbs around it for medicine. It is the oldest medicine of mankind. Artifacts from antiquity found in present-day Iraq suggest that plants were used for their healing properties as long as 60,000 years ago. From 5,000 years ago, we have detailed written records of Chinese remedies using roots, barks, leaves, flowers, fruits, and seeds. The patient would brew up these ingredients into an herbal tea, or perhaps crush the plants and apply them topically. Many of these herbal cures came to the West by way of the Middle East. Historian Barbara Griggs is author of Green Pharmacy. Rhubarb was one of the medicines, great purgative and laxative, was introduced to the West from the Arabs. They also used a lot of the spices that they in turn borrowed from the Far East. So things like uh, ginger and cinnamon, uh, which have quite powerful medicinal uses, came to us through the Arabs as well. The ancient Roman armies, as they campaigned throughout Europe, brought with them knowledge of plant-derived drugs. The influential second-century physician Galen blended herbs into complex mixtures, such as a legendary concoction known as theriac. His medical authority, as well as the custom of producing theriac, would endure for some 1,500 years. Theriac was made with literally hundreds of herbs, some of which had to be picked in their prime, imported from Crete, others had to be prepared in a special way, and just making theriac was actually a ceremony in Venice which people went to see, rather as we might go to a, a rock concert. It was great entertainment. The, the manufacture of this extraordinarily powerful and complex medicine, which was supposed to be able to save a man from the plague if necessary.
Throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, monasteries would cultivate herb gardens as the source of medicines dispensed by religious communities to the infirm. Literate monks followed instructions printed in herbals, the name for prescription books that listed healing plants and their uses. The books often sounded a spiritual note. There's always an acknowledgement that herbs are a gift of God, that they're part of a creation of which we are also part. It was a very holistic view. There's a sense that we're all involved. There's a, there's a macrocosm of which we are a part, and that stars, herbs, trees, fishes, all sorts of creatures, and ourselves, all designed to work together. In olden times, when knowledgeable physicians were few and far between, botanical remedies that could be harvested in your backyard offered an accessible form of health care. But folk medicine could be inaccurate and sometimes vulnerable to outrageous quackery. That's how it appeared to the emerging class of university-trained doctors, all of them male, beginning in the 16th century. They dismissed many home-based herbal practices as old wives' tales. Clearly, there were many things done in the ancient world that were superstitious and had no scientific basis, but there were also some things done there that were very sensible. Physician Andrew Weil. There was a condition called dropsy, which was the accumulation of fluid in the lower extremities. We now call it edema. Uh, this was very common, and the major reason for it is heart failure. And conventional medicine had no treatment for it. But there were these wise women, or old wives in the countryside, uh, who were able to treat dropsy. They gave them herbal teas, and the chief constituent of it was foxglove leaf. And finally, a young English physician uh, was persuaded by his fiancée to visit one of these women in Shropshire, who had a great reputation for curing dropsy. And he realized something interesting was going on there, and got her tea, and realized that the thing in it that was probably doing it was foxglove. And he wrote a paper called An Account of the Foxglove and its Medicinal Uses that made him the most famous physician in Europe, and brought this plant into medicine. To get a feel for the historical use of botanical medicine, I took a tour of the Queen's Herb Garden outside London. It is the kind of day one often associates with England, a uh, little drizzly, a little gray, a little raw, but it's cheered by a pleasant companion, Laura Ponsonby, here at the Royal Botanic Gardens, often known as Kew Gardens, the world's largest botanic garden collection. Right, well, we've just arrived at this little Queen's Garden, which is behind a house which is known as the Dutch House, or Kew Palace. Once upon a time, King George III lived there, and it was, in fact, his mother who founded Kew Gardens in the 18th century. Uh, in front of us, we have a lovely bed of culinary herbs, and then in the main nosegay garden, which is a sunken garden, we've got lots of medicinal plants. Can you show us a few examples? Yes, of course. We'll just walk over here, shall we? Now, this is an interesting one. It's called comfrey, and the Latin name is symphytum. But here, we might think about the old English name, which is set bone or knit bone. And this was used for sprains and breaks. So it was very good for healing limbs and so on. And it was the root which was used. They smashed it up and made it like a sort of plaster and then put it round uh, whatever part needed to be uh, helped. A poultice. A poultice, yes. 
And interestingly, today, we do know that the plant contains something called allantoin, which has a power of healing tissue. So it's a good example of one which was used in the past, given a name because of its use. And today, it's not just what they call an old wise tale. There does seem to be quite a lot of truth in using uh, comfrey. Another one, one familiar, I think, to many people, is the rosemary. Rosemary, which has got a, just a long line. This one's got a few yellow leaves as well. This is the common culinary spice rosemary. That's right, exactly. And it's got just a few little mauve flowers showing as well. That originally came from the Mediterranean. And the name rosemary, rosmarinus, meant it was the dew of the sea because very often that's where it really liked to grow, was near the seaside, so rosmarinus. And this one we use today, of course, as a culinary herb. But it was very valued for troubles of the brain and it was said to improve the memory and so uh, in Shakespeare beer there is a quotation isn't there rosemary that's for remembrance and some people have suggested that it wasn't just a sentimental remembrance but perhaps it was in fact referring to um, the brain and apparently in olden days when people were doing tests or exams they used to wear either a little chaplet of rosemary or a rosemary sprig uh, behind the ear and this improved the brain would that it were so easy. Would that it were so easy, indeed. Now, another one which actually did work um, was willow. They said because willow grew in a wet place that it would be good for your rheumatics. You know, your, your rheumatics are always bad when it's a sort of cold and damp. And they actually found um, in the bark of willow salicylic acid, which, of course, is um, later synthesised with aspirin. So... There, there was some truth in it but so many plants in small amounts uh, are beneficial to us um, we'll probably see a foxglove a little bit later on I mean that's a very good example I often use to people very poisonous if you try to settle down to a, um, a dinner of foxglove leaves instead of your green veg um, that would be it and even Agatha Christie's used it in some of her stories but foxglove of course, is used in heart troubles. And we'll be able to take a look at foxglove in a moment? Yes, we will indeed. Um, yes, now, this is amusing. Just along here, we've got a bench which has got chamomile on it. There's not very much at the moment, but in the 17th century and obviously earlier, life was not a very sweet one and everybody smelt terribly because they didn't wash and so on. And so when you came... Uh, with your friends and wanted to perhaps have some nice conversation on a nice day um, in the garden, really the best place was to sit on your chamomile seat. You bruised it and up round you came this lovely smell. And of course in England they used to have chamomile lawns. If you go to Buckingham Palace um, and stroll about on the Queen's lawns at the back, you'll find that some of her lawn is not grass but it is of chamomile. So that was an early lawn, very often used. Now this is the same herb from which chamomile tea is made. That's exactly right. The flowers of chamomile are used for making the tea. And the other thing about, interesting thing about chamomile is that one of its names was the plant's physician or the plant's doctor. And it was said that if you had a sickly plant in the garden, if you grew it near the chamomile, the chamomile had a wonderful beneficial effect on it and it perked up and did very well. So who knows, perhaps it might help. Well, we're just walking along and I do see, in fact, we have got foxglove just near us. We've got one of the white forms just next to us and there's the typical purple one. Very often you find when it's out you'll find a bee inside. Fox's glue is one of its names but that is a lifesaver really. 
On the other side of the Atlantic, Europeans were discovering a new world where natives had long refined the natural art of healing with herbs. At the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science, America's oldest pharmacy school, Professor Ara de Martirosian has studied the history of botanical medicine in North America. The American Indian up in uh, Maine, Penobscot for example, uh, taught the settlers there how to use the mayapple root extract on skin uh, cancers. It does actually work in, in topical uh, skin cancers. And here the American Indians were using this product. They taught us about the use of pine needles as a source of vitamin C. You know, we didn't know that. We didn't have the citrus fruits. So they were not getting uh, suffering from scurvy, whereas the settlers were because they wouldn't drink the pine needle tea, for example. It was considered too foreign. But then after a while, they began to realize we better pay attention to what they're eating because they're healthy. One of the things that impressed the settlers about the Indians when they first met them was what a splendid-looking people they were. I mean, it was, it was very impressive to the settlers that they saw very few Indians who squinted or were hunched-backed or who limped or were deformed. I mean, mostly they seemed to be very well-made people, very strong, natural, good health and fitness and sort of an athletic build. And the Indians had a, very, had a very wide knowledge of the herbs and roots that grew around them. There was blue flag, for instance, which was used by the Creek Indians as a cathartic, as a very, very powerful purge. The Albany Indians used it topically to apply to leg ulcers to make a poultice. Another plant which was very interesting to the settlers was, was a, a, pl a plant called bone set, which quite a lot of tribes used to help them break a fever. And in fact, boneset produces quite a powerful sweat. Many plant medicines learned from the Native Americans remain widely used to this day, including echinacea, a popular natural remedy for colds. Even with the rise of chemical drugs that accelerated in the 1800s, botanical cures were common pharmacy items into the first part of the 20th century. Pharmacy professor Ara de Martirosian. My grandfather was a pharmacist. Based on that background, I grew up in a pharmacy and during the 40s, 50s, or 60s in an old-time pharmacy, which was still making a lot of its preparations directly from scratch. And we had a thousand drawers full of every known drug there was, the powdered materials, leaf material, uh, standardized herbs, which were sold as teas. Uh, so I had that kind of background. And my grandfather, because he spoke about three or four languages, was able to handle a lot of questions uh, of all the people of the Middle East who spoke either Armenian or Arabic or Turkish or Greek, and they were asking for a lot of these old-time remedies. Indeed, herbal medicine remains the dominant form of health care throughout the globe. The UN's World Health Organization estimates that today 80% of the Earth's population receives care through traditional medicine, of which plant remedies are a mainstay. The U.S. is unusual in its heavy reliance on pharmaceuticals, which often emphasize one potent synthesized drug, rather than the blend of gentler natural ingredients found in plants. Purdue University pharmacy professor Varro Tyler. Probably the United States is the single country in the world that has concentrated most on this single chemical entity magic bullet approach in comparison to almost all other countries. And that includes uh, industrially advanced nations such as England, France, Germany, Canada. I think that uh, this came about 
probably because of the patent situation, the financial, the economic side of things uh, that came along in the 1930s and perhaps early 1940s, but more in the 30s, and uh, did away with a lot of these older remedies that had been used for long periods of time. They were not necessarily ineffective, but none of them could be patented. And therefore, if they could be replaced with a single chemical entity that was a novel chemical compound and could be patented, then obviously the manufacturer was going to market that product, was going to advertise that product to physicians because you can charge more for it, you can get a greater return for your stockholders. The largest botanical drug company in the United States, S.B. Penick, in its declining years in the 1950s was headed by a man named S. Barksdale Penick. And I, I remember a, vividly a conversation I had with him in New York one time where his company was located in which he lamented the fact that these products could not be patented. And he said his business was going downhill. Consequently, his firm was sold and, of course, now is no more. As botanical medicines disappeared from the shelves of drugstores, patients who didn't grow their own turned to health food shops as the supplier of healing herbs. And pharmacy schools, which at one time provided broad education in botanical medicine, began eliminating herbal courses from the curriculum. Thus, a new generation of neighborhood druggists in America had little knowledge of plant remedies, contrasting the picture in many European countries. I was in Germany a couple of years ago, and uh, one thing that I noticed, I was in Bavaria, all of the pharmacies that I saw had window displays that were 100% natural products. Physician Andrew Weil. Everything in the windows was natural products. It was valerian for sleep peppermint oil for irritable bowel syndrome, uh, ginkgo by Loba for improved blood circulation. I mean, all the products were that. And when you walked into these pharmacies, one of the first things that you saw was a big revolving rack of herbal teas. And the pharmacist would tell you what the teas were for and how to use them. You know, this is all true not only in Germany, it's true in France, it's true to some extent in Italy, certainly Switzerland, Austria. You know, this is a worldwide movement. We are being left in the dust by other countries. But in the United States, the tide has begun to turn. Herbal medicines are now resurfacing in many American pharmacies as over-the-counter remedies. Yet while at least a third of Americans are trying alternative health care techniques, including herbs, most do not tell their doctors, according to a survey in the New England Journal of Medicine. Patients apparently perceive that the medical profession frowns on natural therapies. I think medicine and botany have moved very, very far apart. Andrew Weil in Tucson, Arizona, is both a physician and a botanist. You know, at one time these were fields that were very closely allied, and today it's almost impossible to find people that speak the same language. Now, why this upsets me, I mean, not only does it make me an endangered species, but it seems to me it's a measure of the distance that has grown up between medicine and nature, and science and nature in general. And I find that very scary, because it seems to me that fundamentally healing is a natural process. A lot of my writing and work has been to try to direct people's attention to the innate nature of healing, the fact that the body heals itself and has that potential, and I think good medicine should build on that foundation. But there is a real sense in medicine today and in our society that nature is somehow the enemy, that we have to control it, 
uh, distance ourselves from it. And that leads us to think that when there's something wrong with us, we need outside intervention. And that's, I think, a reason that we have the kind of healthcare crisis that we do today, why we produce all the adverse reactions we do, why, you know, for many kinds of diseases, the kinds of treatments we have are so destructive and invasive and so reliant on technology. I think that's a big issue. You're listening to The Medicine Garden. I'm David Freudberg. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.